Today we're in conversation with Simon Walker, who is an ordained Anglican priest who stepped out of parish ministry into the hinterland between the church and the world. Simon has set up two businesses to work in the area of human development, relational being and spirituality. And he also facilitates a course at a number of Church of England uh, training colleges on the area of leadership formation. So Simon, thank you for joining us today. That is my pleasure, Ian. So just starting off immediately, Simon, I think you've written two quite important books that I know numbers of people in the MOOC community and beyond are reading, um, just to give their titles. One of them is The Undefended Life, um, which is published by Human Ecology Partners, and The Undefended Leader, which is a trilogy. Now, just thinking about those books, Simon, because I know they've had quite a big effect on a number of people, in your writings, you have emphasised the need to be undefended in how we live our lives. Rightly, in your books, you have pointed out that many of us are over-defended in Western culture. Can you say a little bit more what, about what you mean by being undefended? Um, yeah, for sure. The notion of being undefended is um, the idea of being able to live uh, without being afraid. So, obviously, we defend ourselves um, when we feel threatened. And a central proposition in um, the work that we do, in, indeed in our theology, is that fundamentally... Since the fall, Genesis chapter 3, as human beings, we've experienced ourselves as uh, under threat. So that fundamental safety that was part of the experience of in the Garden of Eden in that story has been jeopardized, has been lost. And interestingly, in that story there, the first emotion that Adam and Eve experience is fear. We sometimes think it might be guilt or shame, but in fact it's fear. Mm. <clears throat> And, and so, you know, I think if we're going to take that story seriously, it suggests to us that the, the, the axis, the fault line in the world today remains that of fear, and that therefore that's the chief cause, if you like, the kind of fundamental cause uh, which orientates our responsive behavior in, in the world towards others. And essentially what, what it means is that if, if, if I'm afraid, if I don't feel fully safe, when I meet you... I, I'm not able to uh, receive you as potentially as a friend or in a way that's open, but I, I, I tend to regard you either as a threat to me, because you might take something that I have, or, or I might regard you as a commodity. In other words, you might have something which I want. So you know, a, a misplaced transaction takes place there. And that's really the, the essence of what we mean by being defended, that because we live in a world that has the fault line of fear in it, that we're not fully safe, we no longer uh, relate to one another truly in trust and openness, but instead we exploit one another either as commodities or avoid one another, defend ourselves from each other as, as threats. And that therefore, uh, you know, God's movement in the world you know, fundamentally is to uh, free us from this experience of, of fear because only being free from that are we able to uh, for, for, for our relationships to one another to be mm. to begin to be freed. 
that's fascinating because some of the uh, conversations we've had so far through these MOOC podcasts, so a number of them have been with monastics, where there's been mm. a big stress on the idea of, of kind of things that take life away around anger, fear and pride. So it sounds mm. like the starting place then for this is about how this, the distorting effects of one of those particularly being around fear. Is that right? Um, yes, yes it is, that's right. I mean, uh, neuropsychologists have over the last few years, as we've begun to understand the brain more and the emotions of the brain, recognised how toxic and indeed pervasive um, early experiences of fear are in, in, in our lives. And indeed one of the things that I try to write about is how um, our experiences of, of trust and trust breaking down when we are young in our fundamental caring relationships leave a footprint, a legacy if you like, on the way we continue to experience ourselves mm. and the way that we anticipate people treating us as well. And um, this sort of legacy, this memory uh, of uh, not being fully safe and anticipating the way that we might be threatened is very, very toxic. Mm. And, and, and until it, it's ironically I think the the removal of fear is not just a kind of let's take that away it has to be replaced by an experience of safety of security so I'm 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 very my spirituality is one in which we have to seek for a source of safety a source of security source of intimacy and love at an emotional level to be set free from this toxic Mm. pathology of fear it's not so it's not a spirituality of negation or just a passivity uh, per se, it is a, it's a spirituality of attachment to a source of security that is big enough to make us fully safe. Mm. I was fascinated when I was reading your books and I definitely identified with one of the four, I think, key groupings that you talk about. Uh, and I was fascinated how you talk about, and I think very rightly, talk about how we play out um, different mm. personalities drawing on our early uh, parental experiences. Can you say a little bit more about these four different groupings um, and why you think they, you know, they are so, these groupings are so clear um, and how they inform us to understand how we are? Well, the experiences of ourselves when we're children is that basically, fairly obviously, we're very small mm. and we're surrounded by very big people. And, and so you, you essentially, as a, as a small person in the world, need to harness the agency of someone who's big to be on your side if you're going to be safe. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you can't make yourself safe on your own, so it has to be done for you. So the attachment that you have to someone who is for you, who's on your side reliably, is is absolutely essential. And and so we look at um, the degree to which uh, people have um, learned to trust others, to, to trust how they experienced whether uh, the people who were responsible for caring for them, which may have been parents or, or, or uh, teachers or, or the siblings, or but mainly for, for many of us it's parents, of course, is the trustworthiness of that relationship. Is mm. this big person for me reliably? And we, we, we look at the legacy of when that relationship is trustable, if you like, trustworthy, and when it isn't. Mm. Um, we also look at the legacy of, of someone learning to trust themselves as well. Um, and that's in terms of the, the, the kind of feedback, the positive evaluations that they've been given, which have the effect of enabling us to either see ourselves well and as someone who, who could be trusted or, 
uh, it may leave a negative legacy that, that we're, we're someone who, who finds that it is hard to see ourselves as, as someone who has worth, who can command attention um, mm. and, and, and affection. So these, these four aspects of the, um, the experience of, of children who grow up with a high trust of, of others or a low trust of others and a high trust of themselves or a low trust of themselves these these two poles, if you like, interact with each other to create what we call a four-category model of um, either developing a defending pattern or, or an adapting pattern or a defining pattern or a shaping pattern. Mm. And um, this correlates, uh, some of your listeners may be aware of attachment theory, um, and there are some correlations between what we teach here and understandings of attachment in wider psychological science. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty clear that these early stage experiences through our childhood um, remain as kind of defining models of how we continue to see ourselves in, in, in life. So one of the ways we talk about that is, is that um, it's almost as if the landscape of ourselves is laid down in, in our, our childhood. Mm. And that becomes the kind of the topography, the bedrock of how we then live in, that, uh, in, in our land throughout the rest of our lives. Mm. So it's, um, it's quite possible and, and relatively easy as you, as you grow up in, as you live in your land, as it were, to, you know, to change the, the fences and to you know, move some shrubs around and plots and you and new flower beds and that sort of thing. But it's much harder to do some major earthworks yes. and dig, you know, or change the fundamental topography of that space. Mm. Um, and you, you said something very interesting, Ian. You, know, you, you, you talked about who we are, and um, I think uh, there's, a, there's a resonance with your sense of uh, identity as that of becoming mm. in that uh, landscapes. Uh, they have a history to them but they continue to emerge and evolve. Um, so we speak about it, the deep architecture of a landscape of a person's self, which gets laid down and which evolves very slowly. And yet the emergent patterns, the sense of growth, there can be the sense of seasons and development. So there's both a sense of trying to be realistic about some of the, um, the legacies that have been put down in our past, uh, which may or may not uh, have been positive or may mm. be negative. And to take those seriously, so to take the, the notion of, of the need for healing and redemption very seriously, but at the same time to be uh, able to be hopeful that we're not fixed, mm. we are not, uh, we're not set in our ways genetically or in some kind of predetermined way because we've got some sort of inherent type. Um, we are a, an open landscape that continues to evolve and emerge, and, mm. and, and the de desire of the, of the divine is, yes. is for that incarnation for God to presence himself in our, in our landscape to be fully mm. present so that we become um, known again by him so the, just to go through that again then, so the, just in summary the, what, what would you, how would you describe those four types and name them that would be helpful I think for people to hear okay so to go back to those four names I mentioned the, we talked about the defending pattern and this is a, this is a patterning where um, someone grows up with a, a low trust of themselves uh, as well as a low trust of other people. Mm. Um, so someone who doesn't have a high regard for themselves, but also tends to anticipate that other people are probably quite untrustworthy as well. Yeah. So um, 
they can be they can be quite cautious or they can require real loyalty from others um, and be full of anticipation that other people are going to sort of let them down and betray them. Mm. The second pattern is what we call the adapting pattern, where someone has uh, similarly has a, a, a low trust of themselves, so they don't have a high regard for themselves, uh, but they, they tend to have a high trust for other people, a high trust of other people. So what they tend to do is to they place too much weight on other people's evaluation of them. Mm. And so they can be quite attention-seeking, needing to try to get praise and approval, um, but equally, when they're when they're criticised, they take that very very seriously, and they can internalise blame because they mm. they don't question the judgments that have been made over them. The third pattern is what we call the defining pattern, and uh, this is where someone uh, has a, a high trust of themselves, so they tend to sort of back themselves a high, high regard for the, for their own sort of self opinion, but they have a low trust of other people. Mm. And uh, what that means is that, that they can be quite self-sufficient, that um, they'll always back themselves and trust themselves rather than sort of going to others for, for help, really. And that can breed a kind of territorial behavior, a sort of win-lose mentality where, you know, they have to win in everything. Mm. Um, and uh, they, they fear losing, really. They fear failure. Um, and the fourth pattern that we talk of with the shaping pattern where uh, a person um, grows with a sense of a high trust of themselves and a high trust of other people. And you think to yourself, um, you know, you get these kind of four category models, don't you? you tend to think to yourself, well, mm. uh, the one with, with high on everything, that, that's wonderful, I'd love to be like that. <laughs> the perfect one. It doesn't work quite like that. We've done a huge amount of work with over sort of 500 leaders um, with, who've come on our, our six-day course, and we've got a lot of experience of people who share, show all of these patterns. And we tend to find with the, the shaping pattern there, with someone with a high trust of themselves and a high trust of others, is that they are that they, they are tend to be optimistic. They tend to be quite resilient people. They tend to be quite uh, confident. They tend to think that they're the best of others. Uh, they're not particularly territorial. That they can cope with failure. But, but equally, they, they can sometimes struggle with the, the, the sheer unresolvable discomfort and pain mm. in life because mm. it's quite an unfamiliar experience to them. Mm. And they can struggle seeing it in other people and they can struggle yeah. in it uh, in themselves as well. And um, sometimes, uh, sometimes you, you, know, you find this in church leaders, actually, that, that you get mm. shaping church leaders who want to rescue people. Right? They have that sense <laughs> of sort of rescuing the needy, as it were. Of course, lots of us love to be rescued. Mm. But it doesn't actually help us to grow up. Yeah. Um, in general, we grow up by wrestling with mm. uh, struggle. So there are there are deficits there and things to learn. I think Peter, I write about Peter the Apostle, Peter, mm. Simon Peter, as, as a kind of a shaping character. And one of the things that, um, that that model helps us understand is why he so abruptly betrayed Jesus. If you want to know about that, you can have to read Yeah. No, no, I like that chapter a lot. Now, just just going back then, so I'm, I'm mm. liking what you're saying. So we've got this idea that we've got these landscapes to our life which are kind of mapped mm. out through experience. 
And then in your book, which I think is very helpful, is it then you can kind of think about, well, what are, you know, what was my experience and how do I relate to these four types? And I, I personally relate to one of them very strongly. I like your idea then that we can somehow be free and we can be liberated not to play out these scripts from our um, early childhood and, and life experience. And you talk a lot about how something about the, knowing God's love and, and the love of God at the heart of this is part of our liberation. Knowing how many people are kind of struggle with this sense of being free from um, from the, from themselves, do you mm. do you believe then that people can really be that free from their scripts? Well, um, you know, I, I, I think our, our theological grounds are, are probably tell us that we're, we're the journey that we're on isn't going to be completed um, in a lifetime. Um, but I do have. Uh, I think we've misread some of the, the New Testament teaching on um, the, 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 the kind of the process of what, what has been called by some traditions sanctification or mm. you know, the process of coming more Christ-like. We tend to see that as a sort of struggle between the bit of us that wants to please God and the, the bit of us that, you know, frankly, uh, wants to just get on and, and live life our own way. And we tend to think of the spirit as a sort of uh, divine wind who's empowering and strengthening that, that you know that good voice in it, in us. Mm. And slowly over time, the sort of the mix between the good and the bad gets a little bit uh, you know stronger um, as the spirit empowers that. So we we sort of have a washing metaphor of of the the process of sanctification where we're slowly sort of washed and the dirt's washed out. I'm I'm not sure actually that that is what Paul for example, it's one of the guys who writes about this, mm. those talks about, and indeed I'm not sure it's what we see in Jesus' life. That great chapter in Romans 8 that describes the, 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 the life of the person lived in the Spirit, Paul has some really striking things to say. He talks about the mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Mm. So he seems to describe a possibility of being in a state where we are in life and peace. You know, the mind is controlled by the spirit and we're in life mm -hmm. and peace. Not this sort of mixed economy that we often experience in ourselves. Mm -hmm. and I, I, I've come to see that as, as, as that Paul isn't actually talking about a sort of bit of us which is bad, bit of us which is good, but of two spaces that we can live in in the world. On the one hand, there's the, um, there's the space in the world where uh, because the world is not safe, uh, because we are therefore, to some extent, at some level, sensing ourselves as under threat, it is inevitable that our behavior that flows from that mm. will be to defend ourselves. And there's yeah. nothing we can do about that. And from that uh, posture of needing to defend ourselves, all sorts of characteristics and behaviors flow, whether it's of anxiety, whether it's of depression, whether it's of aggression, whether it's of uh, impatience, or whatever it is. Mm. And if you like, there's nothing we can do about that. So there's no way we can stop that behavior. Um, and those become in rutted scripts and patterns which get repeated. But um, the, the question is, what, what, does, what is God inviting us into? What is the gospel life? What is the kingdom life? And, um, and I wonder whether uh, Paul is talking about a realm of the spirit seems to talk about this realm of the spirit and the realm of the spirit is a realm that he connects with 
adoption. Mm-hmm. He speaks about adoption in Romans 8 um, there, where we are given the spirit of sonship, the divine child. And I, I think when you tie this back to Jesus' teaching, um, what is being drawn out here is that the heart of the gospel is an invitation to um, experience the world as fundamentally safe. Mm. And that, that, that that safety isn't just a kind of fiction. It isn't just a, um, you know, we're trying to convince ourselves that it's safe, but actually it isn't believing 10 impossible things before breakfast, as Alice used to do. Mm. It, it's a reality on the basis that uh, Jesus comes and announces that the God who is there is for us, and that he's not just for us, but that he is our Father, and that he invites us to know him as Father, to be adopted. Mm. And the central, um, uh, the central doctrine, if you like, is the doctrine of providence, um, this notion that, that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 6, that because the Father is for us, therefore the day that we are given comes to us as a gift, mm. where everything that we need for that day is contained within that day. It is uh, available to us, it's given to us there in the gift of God, in the province of God. Mm. Now what's the fundamental to that is, is uh, and so radically changing for us is is that it's if that's true it means that it's possible for me to experience this day that I'm having right now on the 22nd of August um, not as a threat that I've got to somehow defend against but as a gift that I can receive mm. and all of a sudden um, it's as if I'm no longer standing in that world <laughs> of fear that I'm living in a world that is fully safe mm. And in that place of safety, I think we're getting closer to what Paul talks about, of living in the spirit where our mind is controlled by life and peace. Because in that place, if, as, I, as I, I step into that experience of the day as gift, receiving the day as gift, receiving these conversations, encounters, both uh, difficult things and easy things in the day as gift, um, so it becomes inevitable that I will respond in a way that is free. It's not a hard thing to do, as I experience life as gift. I mean, we can all think of wonderful days, you know, where Mm. everything has gone right, it's fabulous. It's not difficult in that experience Mm. to be kind and patient and generous. Mm. Um, And there's something, not not that God is giving us gift in that kind of sugar-coated way, but there's something very deep and profound about God saying, Experiences as gifted in that space, in that posture, it is inevitable that you will start to actually exhibit the fruits of the spirit. It's not a difficult thing. You've got to kind of mm. screw up yourself to be morally righteous. It's an easy thing because you're flowing with the life of God, with the gift that He gives you. And so, what Paul, I think, is talking about here is two spaces we can live in. We can either live in the world as fear, uh, fearful in which it's inevitable that all of our toxic pathology of behavior just flows out. Nothing we can do to stop that, because we've got to defend ourselves. Or we can turn our attention to, and pay attention to, and receive the world as gift, in which it is inevitable that a whole set of different behaviors will start to fly out. Now, the thing is mm. that I got so used, so habituated <laughs> to living in the world in that fearful state, that I go back to it so easily. Mm. And I have to learn the spiritual discipline is to learn the disciplines of paying attention to that world as gift and learning to attend to it, to receive it in that way. And I'm a baby in that. 
And that's the, that's the, the task, that's the spiritual discipline of receiving the grace of God, the gift of God, that is available to us. Can I ever live only in the Spirit? Well, probably not, but my, you know, my, the invitation God gives us is to, is to mm. this day step into that space rather than the other. Thank you for listening to this Moot Podcast. For more information on our events, resources and community, please go to www.moot.uk.net.